0: Healthcare industry capitalists are seeking to sabotage measures that would cut into their profits as they continue their war on the poor, the elderly, and the sick. We'll also discuss the far right, which has its sights set on education, pushing for bans on the teaching of the history of racism in America and on COVID safety precautions in its latest efforts to stir up baseless controversy. We'll also talk about the death of war criminal General Ray Odierno, Protests against the Line 3 pipeline and new CIA efforts to target China.
1: We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity.
0: Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's October 12th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarim, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarim is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, this week, there's a whole week of action of people versus fossil fuels, of lots of organizing to stop the Line 3 pipeline that's being threatened to be put in in the Midwest. What's going on there?
1: Well, there are protests every day, and these protests are not only in Washington, D.C., they're going to continue all across the country. Of course, in Minnesota, in Wisconsin, in the other places where Line 3 is an immediate danger to the people, where the danger of an oil spill in the Line 3 run by the Enbridge Corporation from Canada, it will spill. It will definitely spill. It's also, of course, going through the lands of indigenous people those lands are their lands by treaty right. They are sovereign lands. And yet the Biden administration, like the Trump administration before it, is not doing anything to adhere to the demands of the indigenous people of Minnesota in particular, who don't want line three built through their lands, don't want it destroying the rice lakes. So there's going to be protests all across the country demanding that Biden stop line three. Now, what's interesting is that this comes also in the same week as what was formerly called Columbus Day, that would be Monday, yesterday, but is now kind of universally recognized as a consequence of the struggle of indigenous people and their allies as Indigenous People's Day. In fact, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, the same one who's not stopping Enbridge, not listening to the indigenous people in Minnesota, who are demanding the end of the pipeline. He did issue a proclamation on Indigenous People's Day 2021. It was in many ways historic. No U.S. president before has done that. He has acknowledged that this day, formerly called Columbus Day, is Indigenous People's Day. But of course, being a centrist, being a ruling class centrist, Nicole, he didn't declare it simply to be Indigenous Peoples Day, he also said it is Columbus Day. Anyway, he did that, right?
0: Yeah, he issued two separate proclamations, one for Columbus Day, which he's declared the second Monday of October of each year is Columbus Day, and the second Monday of October of each year is also Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, Notably in his proclamation, he did actually say, we recognize this painful past for Native Americans, how Western exploration ushered in a wave of devastation, but he also, you know, talked about how many italians would follow in the path of Christopher Columbus and risking poverty, starvation and death in pursuit of a better life. Sort of minimizes what's going on here, I think. I mean,
1: there was an Italian American lobby for Columbus Day back in the 1880s and 1890s when Columbus Day finally became a holiday, but it wasn't really about Italian Americans. What was happening then was the the verdict of the US Civil War was being reversed. The U.S. government had pulled the troops out from the South. Reconstruction was ended in a bloody counter-revolution. The South was given back to the plantation owners and their armed terrorist wing, the KKK. And so as the North was retreating from the vestiges of anti-racism that accompanied the post-Civil War period during the time when the radical Republicans, meaning left-wing politicians, were in charge of Congress, the emphasis on colonialism and whiteness became a thing. It was during the same period that the U.S. formally adopted apartheid as an official policy, 1890s, the same period. It's the great retreat away from black freedom, the retreat towards and sort of embrace of counter-revolution that followed the Civil War so that even though the South lost the war, Militarily, it won the war politically in the way the war was thought about and remembered. And that's the true history of Columbus Day. Christopher Columbus never set foot on the territory that is now the United States of America. So there would be no reason that Christopher Columbus should be celebrated by people in the United States. Furthermore, of course, Christopher Columbus and his expedition and the expeditions that followed were the precursors to the enslavement of the indigenous populations. They were the precursor to a genocide on two continents. They were the precursor not only to settler colonialism, but the import of African people to work the farms and plantations of the rich colonizers in North and South America. Anyway, that is the real genesis of Columbus Day. But, you know, it is important in one way to recognize that Biden only did this proclamation on Indigenous Peoples Day 2021 because of the uprising against racism last summer after the killing of George Floyd. It was the mobilization of 35 million people, many of whom were protesting for the first time, that changed the political climate. That's when the Pentagon, who in 2015 said that they would never change the name of the 10 military bases named after Confederate soldiers, they said, oh, yeah, we're going to change those names now. That's when the owner, the billionaire owner, Dan Snyder of the Washington football team, who had said that they would never change the racist name of the Washington football team using the R word, he said, quote, and this is an an interview in 2013, will never change the name. It's that simple. Never. N-E-V-E-R. You can use all caps. That was billionaire Dan Snyder resisting the demands of indigenous people in this area and their allies who were repulsed by the usage of this racist slur for the Washington football team. Now the Washington football team, starting last year, it's called the Washington football team. Anyway, it's a real sign of how anything actually changes, not because the powers that be suddenly wake up and say, wow, Christopher Columbus was really just a genocidal maniac and indigenous people were slaughtered and their land stolen. No, it's because of the struggle of people, the working class in the United States, many sectors actually in the United States who came together to fight against racism that leads to these changes. By the way, I don't know how many of you have sort of looked into these, why the Pentagon named all of these US military bases after Confederate generals who took up arms against the United States government in what was the bloodiest war the US has ever fought, 655,000 People in this country died during the U.S. Civil War between 1861 and 65. And that's when the country was only 30 million. Compare that to World War II, where the U.S. lost 400,000 or 450,000, but the U.S. was at that time a country of 150 million. And yet the U.S. military names all of these military bases after the Confederate generals who took up arms against the U.S. government. And I was looking, I was thinking, well, has the U.S. government or has the Pentagon ever named a U.S. military base, say, after Frederick Douglass or Sojourner Truth or Harriet Tubman or John Brown, the people who fought against the enslavement of people, who fought to end slavery, did it ever you know, name any military bases after them? And of course, the answer is no. But the other thing I found out, which really is mind-blowing, given the fact that the Pentagon represents the United States Army, and the United States Army defeated the counter revolutionary renegades who took up arms in 1861, known as the Confederacy. The Pentagon has only named two U.S. military bases after Union generals. So we have, you know, all of these Pentagon operations, bases, installations named after the Confederates, and almost none, only two named after U.S. generals who led the Union Army during the Civil War. No, you know, Fort Grant or Fort Sherman or anything like that. Anyway, it says a lot about how naming takes place, labeling, and the reason this is important, it's not simply symbolic, it's also about how future generations learn the lessons of history, which then informs consciousness about the struggle today. If you think, if you're taught through your whole life, General Robert E. Lee, who fought for slavery, was a great man. That has a big impact on public consciousness. When the schools are named after him and the highways and his birthday is celebrated, it has an impact. Anyway, this renaming of things, while symbolic, isn't unimportant.
2: Here's one fact that I think really supports what you're saying, Brian, and it really just says it all about what the true purpose of these Confederate monuments are, you know, public institutions named after Confederate leaders, military bases. I mean, this is why there's all this, you know, public display of sympathy for the Confederacy. It's not, you know, as the racists ridiculously argue about heritage or history. It's about racism. It's about reproducing the ideology, the white supremacist ideology that lays at the root of this system, the capitalist system in the United States. So there are about 1,500 Confederate memorials scattered across the United States, and at least 22 of them are in places that were not part of the United States when the Civil War was fought. 22 of them, including a memorial in Montana in longing tribute to our Confederate soldiers. Well, there were no Confederate soldiers in Montana. Montana was not part of the United States. It was not a state of the United States at the time of the Civil War. I mean, this is 100% obviously about racism. How could it be anything else?
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. The Pentagon has Fort Pickett. That's named after General George Pickett, a Confederate general. In 1864, right before the war was going to end, General Pickett became additionally notorious because he carried out mass executions, hangings of Union soldiers. These were prisoners of war. And he just you know, brought them out in 1864 and put them on the gallows and executed them. Then he went through all of the Union soldiers who had been captured looking for any of the soldiers. These were whites who had been from the South, who had decided not to fight with the South, who the Southern soldier was conscripted. The Confederate soldier was conscripted. If they didn't volunteer, they were conscripted. They were drafted. So these people not only avoided conscription, but they went and fought with the Union Army. And so he went through the ranks to find all of them. And then he executed them right at the end of the war and declared them traitors too to be fighting for the US Army in 1864. And now here's the Pentagon naming one of the 10 military bases named after Confederates, named after General, Major General George E. Pickett. This demonstrates, as you said, Walter, the only reason that somebody like Pickett, who was despised throughout the north for these crimes during that time period 1864 65 66 the fact that one of the 10 pentagon bases is named after him shows that it is the glorification of racism and racist violence there's no other reason you would pick major general georgie pickett to name a us military installation after all right enough ranting about the names of us military bases let's go to some other really important stories. I was looking at a tweet, Nicole, by David Frumpkin. It was very insightful. He said, you know, the people of this country, those people in the country who know about the legislation in Congress right now, they know it by one piece of information. They know it costs $3.5 trillion, but they don't know anything else about it. $3.5 3.5 trillion 3.5 trillion you look at every headline whether it's the republican media the fox news media cnn the washington post the new york times it's always discussed in public discourse as the 3.5 trillion dollar package but people don't know what's in it and they don't know where the money would come from again it's the messaging on this has been a complete and utter success for the opponents of any new social spending program, and a disaster for the Democrats who say they want to pursue it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really outrageous and really, really frustrating from you know the perspective of somebody who wants workers and families to have anything more than what we currently have, which is not very much. And some of the really important pieces of this are as basic as elder care, as basic as you know, making sure that families have what they need to take care of the elders in their family, which currently they don't. There's at least 820,000 people across the country, and these are mostly disabled people or elderly people, who are on a wait list for waivers. These are Medicaid waivers that would help them or their families afford home-based care rather than putting, you know, disabled family members or elderly family members in facilities or in nursing homes or anything like that. This was a need before the pandemic. A lot of people don't want to put or can't afford to put family members in facilities or these nursing homes. There's a lot of abuse in nursing homes. They can be extremely expensive. And one option is to try to get a home care worker to come help out while you're working and while you're, you know, child with developmental disabilities or your parents who are elderly who need a little bit of extra assistance, which, you know, is very, very expensive to have home care workers come into your home and help out. Maryland on its own has a wait list of 21,000 people who are waiting, just waiting nebulously in this sort of waiting zone, trying to get this Medicaid waiver to help afford home-based care. There's a bunch of different reasons it's happening, one of which is eligibility requirements and, you know, all of these sort of resources that go into this. But it was just as bad, honestly, or nearly as bad before the pandemic. And right now, applicants are waiting an average of 39 months a couple of really horrendous examples in Maryland in particular, it's bad in Maryland, but it's bad all over the country. One woman in Rockville, Maryland, helped her elderly mother apply for a waiver in 2014. This is from a Washington Post article. And she received approval five years later, at which point both she and her mother were in nursing homes. Another couple in Towson, Maryland, joined the waiver waitlist when their disabled son was five, and they heard back when he was 14. I mean, this is not effective. This is not help. This is not useful. And one of the big causing problems of this happening is that home care workers earn a median wage of $12 an hour. About a fifth of them are living in poverty. And the Medicaid rate for these home care workers, for a lot of them, can be half or a third of what private payers offer. So a lot of staffing agencies don't take the Medicaid reimbursement meaning that, you know, there's just not that many people out there who are paid to provide these things and not that many of these companies that are able to do this or are choosing to do this because of, you know, because of the reimbursement rate. So there's just not enough resources going into this and people are really really suffering. And again, it's elderly, it's disabled and it's the poor who are suffering because if you have enough money, you can afford a full-time home care worker. There's another issue with healthcare going on as well. A recent study showed that you know, this is all related that patients in nursing homes owned by private equity firms, and this is something people might not know about, but especially during the pandemic, nursing homes were being bought up by private equity firms. And of course, the nursing homes owned by those have an increased risk of death during their stay and the following 90 days after their stay. The study found that after private equity takeovers, quality of care ratings. Declined, staffing hours at nursing homes declined in these nursing homes, the use of antipsychotic drugs increased, and the amount billed for residents' care increased. I mean, all of those things I just mentioned are factors going toward increasing the bottom line of the private equity firm and decreasing the health of our elders who are being, you know, theoretically cared for, but in fact abused in these nursing homes. And a lot of these facilities are where, as we all know, a lot of the early COVID-19 deaths, but, you know, continually a lot of COVID-19 deaths occurred. About 45% of Maryland's COVID-19 deaths occurred at longtime facilities. That's about 31,000 residents and staff members who have gotten the coronavirus, and 3,500 who have died just in the state of Maryland. A lot of what I'm telling you is focused on Maryland because the state is talking about taking some action, There's currently bills on both sides of the Maryland legislature that would require state inspectors to take unannounced visits three and six months after these private equity firms are buying nursing homes. But, you know, what really needs to be happening is these private equity firms have no business owning these nursing homes. We should be able to take care of our elders the way we want to take care of our elders and have the funds and the resources to do that.
2: Wow, I mean, what an outrage, what a complete outrage that industry operates in that manner. You know, Brian mentioned the $3.5 trillion social spending budget and how it's known by its price tag, but there's very little public consciousness because there's so little discussion in the media about what actually is in it. Just to list some of the things that would be most important to working class people, there would be the extension of Medicare coverage to cover vision, hearing, and dental. It would make permanent a tax credit that is dispersed in the form of a monthly check to working class parents. You would get a $300 a month check for every child you had under the age of six and $250 a month for every child over the age of six. Community college would become free, pre-K would become free, universal, child care would become heavily subsidized, free for the lowest income working class people. It would finally allow the United States to join practically every other industrialized country that has guaranteed family and sick leave for workers. It would create a civilian conservation corps to try to mitigate some of the effects of climate change. It would also make, while not sufficient, very substantial investments in measures to combat climate change. It would invest hundreds of billions of dollars into affordable housing all across the country, including making... Badly needed repairs to existing affordable housing stock and would invest hundreds of billions of dollars into many other projects as well. I mean, this would be, you know, probably the biggest expansion of social programs in the United States since the Great Society programs of the Johnson administration in the 1960s.
0: And one of the reasons I think that the Biden administration and the Democrats in Congress are struggling with this bill and are struggling to pass it. I mean, one of the reasons is that it doesn't seem like they're trying very hard, although notable that Biden is starting to put a little bit of muscle into it. You know, he's said publicly now that they're not going to have a deadline. They're just going to wait until they're able to pass it, which is great. I mean, they could have just totally run roughshod over that deadline and said, well, we're just going to pass the infrastructure bill. They didn't. But when you look at all of the dark money that's going into the lobbying against this and that's gone into lobbying against all kinds of things, all kinds of things that workers need that are against the financial incentives of the massive healthcare industry and or health insurance industry or hospital industry, those kinds of places. I think you can see very clearly there why it's so hard to pass things because there's so much money that, you know, is used to lobby and to push and to, you know, ensure that people who are elected to office are not going to vote in the way that's actually in the interest of their people. There's one report from the Daily Poster newsletter, dailyposter.com. There's some new details coming out about the way that the corporate healthcare industry really abuses its patients. And one of them is United Healthcare, the nation's biggest healthcare insurer, has been starting to actually Look back at patients who have the United Insurance. They've been looking back at ER visits, visits to the emergency room when, you know, this arguably is the scariest, most awful time in somebody's life when they're going to the emergency room, you know, because they're scared, because they don't know what's happening, because they're in a lot of pain. And they're looking back and based on the medical codes, the diagnostic codes that doctors, you know, in those visits put into the computers, they're deciding retroactively. After the fact, whether they want to cover those ER visits or not. And so sometimes they're taking back the fact that they covered them and saying, well, you know, you visited, but the diagnostic code doesn't make sense to us. So we're not going to pay for that emergency room visit. I mean, this is so, so disgusting.
1: And anybody who's been to an emergency room, I mean, you're there for a couple hours. The bill could be thousands of dollars. The thousands way of dollars. The healthcare system works,
0: and they're lobbying against you know all sorts of things that would be helpful. They're lobbying against the elements of this budget reconciliation bill, this incredible bill that wouldn't fix everything, but man, has a ton of great stuff in it that Walter just talked about. And you know, there are groups out there, for example, who have been putting out polling. <laughs> it's push polling to try to make it look like people don't want public option like people only want a corporate option but that makes no sense i mean the reason that a public option would be so good is it would reduce costs for everybody it would reduce costs for the government it would reduce costs for people you know the only people who would be losing out is the you know massive industrial healthcare complex health insurance complex
1: one important fact and i don't have it in an exact number but it's more or less this number the administrative costs, administrative and management costs associated with private insurance companies is about $600 billion. Meaning, if you eliminated these private insurance companies completely, just got rid of them, you had single payer health plan like Medicare, you don't go through a private insurance company, that would be a savings of $600 billion plus dollars. Another part of the spending bill, the $3.5 trillion, as they call it, is that Biden was trying to get lower drug prices for people on Medicare and Medicaid by renegotiating the contracts with prices to get lower prices for bulk orders of medicine from pharmaceuticals. And the pharmaceuticals have spent this year, so far, $171 million dollars Through TV ads, newspaper ads, and direct lobbying of politicians in Congress to make sure that the government won't renegotiate so that the government pays less for pharmaceuticals presented to Medicare and Medicaid recipients. Walter, I wanted to ask you before we continue our show and move on the expansion in the $3.5 trillion so called spending package includes expanding coverage for vision hearing, and dental for Medicare. How is it that you can construct a healthcare system where you think like vision, meaning how can you see or can you see? Hearing, how are you hearing or can you hear? Or dental, your mouth. How can this be designed in a way that up until this point, and Medicare came into existence since 1965, right? That dental, your mouth, your ears, and your eyes are somehow exempted from the rest of your body in terms of coverage. I mean, what a ludicrous, bizarre system. Again, designed only so as to maximize profits for corporations, so that even meaningful reforms like Medicare have this institutionalized restriction that if you're over 65 and you're on Medicare and you're losing your hearing, you
2: don't get Medicare coverage that makes no sense. It's completely ridiculous. And yeah, exactly. I mean, what possible explanation could there be for something that makes so little sense? Then it's simply designed to maximize the profits of corporations that don't want to pay for that. I mean, what logic is behind that? Like, okay, let's just cut out some of your senses. Who cares about that? That's not a big deal. That's just a luxury to be able to see or to be able to hear. Or to have teeth left in your mouth. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason for this. And it shows how absurd it is to have a healthcare system that's based on profit, that's based on essentially exploiting and taking advantage of people at their most vulnerable hour, their hour of greatest need. All right, I wanna go on
1: to another story. Esther, I know you have been covering line three, the struggle of indigenous people and other people who just care about the climate, don't want to have more and more fossil fuels destroying the planet, more and more use of fossil fuels so that climate catastrophe is not only inevitable, but ever more imminent. Anyway, protests down here in Washington, D.C., they're going on all week long. Yesterday, Monday on Indigenous Peoples Day, Lots of people out, people getting arrested. This was an indigenous-led action. Talk about it.
3: Right. So on Monday, about 100 people were arrested during the first day of these direct actions and acts of civil disobedience planned at the White House called People versus Fossil Fuels. And this action is led by a coalition of indigenous, black, environmental, and social justice organizations all week. And Biden is the target because though he promised these same groups as a candidate to aggressively address the climate catastrophe and prioritize environmental justice, he did not, over the recent months, stop the construction of the Enbridge Line 3 pipeline, you know, that we mentioned threatens the headwaters of the Mississippi River and Lake Superior, in addition to the native treaty lands where there are all these medicines and indigenous wild rice that are collected by the people there. And his administration is also defending oil drilling in the Arctic. He's promoting fossil fuel exports, and he's allowing drilling, mining, and fracking to continue on native and public lands. And even as we watch what's unfolding in Congress, what you were just describing, he allowed what could have been a $10 trillion investment in addressing the climate catastrophe be whittled down to part of a $6 trillion offer plan that is now just part of a $3.5 trillion build back better plan that is threatened even more by the right wing of his own party, right? With Senator Joe Manchin. Of West Virginia, heavily invested personally in fossil fuels and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, who ran for office with this kind of hipster veneer of progressivism, you know, directly pushing in the last couple of days for $100 billion in cuts from climate measures. So the activists this week are risking arrests and are clear, you know, acknowledging what small steps Biden has taken, like last week, he reversed many of the Trump's egregious attempts to expand drilling in national monuments like Bears Ears. But they're very clear that there are other measures that he could take on an executive level, but he's just not doing it. So these important days of action started on Monday, like I said, on Indigenous People's Day, and Ben Zinovich was on hand for Liberation News, and I spoke to him about the action. So every day this week, there is a direct action of civil disobedience planned at the White House called People Versus Fossil Fuels. It started on Monday on Indigenous Peoples Day, and Ben Zinovich was on hand reporting for Liberation News. Welcome to The Socialist Program, Ben.
4: Thank you for having me, Esther.
3: So can you just tell us about what happened on Monday? Just tell us about the action
4: Sure. So about a couple hundred of people got up really early to demand action on the climate, more specifically a, a cease, a sort of addiction towards fossil fuels. So it was people from across the country, across the world. They had attended trainings the night before on just knowing all their rights, knowing songs to sing that were born out of the movement. And art making, any sort of supplies that they needed in preparation, they all took care of that Sunday night. So on Monday, on Indigenous Peoples Day, it was really just all about centering the voice of Indigenous people who have been on the front lines defending the environment and biodiversity at large from these corporations, from these fossil fuel billion-dollar companies that have basically declared war on these people and their lands.
3: And I know one of the struggles that we've talked about on the show is the struggle against Line 3 in northern Minnesota, which is really threatening the headwaters of the Mississippi and also mm-hmm. a lot of the indigenous land there where people grow their wild rice and retrieve their you know native medicines, So I know that they completed line three, but the struggle still continues. Was that struggle highlighted on Monday or some of the other indigenous struggles highlighted Monday?
4: Yes, absolutely. I think that line three was in in everybody's mind, front of people's thoughts. There was a lot of people who were completely engaged in Minnesota and they had come for the week just for this action. A lot of people who had been like veterans, even from the Dakota Access Pipeline struggle. And that, I think, kept people aware of the fact that look, like the Dakota Access Pipeline, that was restricted. That was, I believe, it was shut down. And the administration under Joe Biden could have just as much say in whether or not a pipeline such as Line 3, one that Enbridge has even admitted that. It is expected or estimated to leak once every 20 days. If you're talking about something that it has such a likely failure system, in the country's largest watershed, in the lands in which 80% of biodiversity, which is protected by the indigenous people of this land, that's something that people always were constantly reiterating on Monday.
3: Right. So I know you spoke to some people there is there like a voice or, you know, someone who you would like to highlight to share with the listeners?
4: Yes. Tasha. she is a indigenous activist, native to lands within Minnesota. And she was just emphasizing how a lot of times there's this dissonance or tension between workers in Minnesota, such as the pipe fitters who have I guess, become more sympathetic to, I guess, the Enbridge side of things. When in fact, Enbridge themselves are able to invest in clean energy. She noted that Enbridge has investments in renewable resources. So the conversation is less about do we have to sacrifice these jobs or have people lose all these sort of temporary jobs in creating the pipeline? And it's more about, do we have the political will to make this sort of just transition towards climate justice and zero carbon emissions?
0: Ambridge does have the ability to move forward with more sustainable energy. They do... Have green energy within the Enbridge Corporation, and their workers can make the same amount of money by building hemp farms and building solar panels as they do laying pipe. You know, it's not about the availability of these jobs, it's about, you know, people's comfortability and what they know
3: you know, when we talk about indigenous peoples, we're not just talking about people who we can refer to as Native Americans. But even when you look at the current case of Steven Donzinger, he was protecting the rights of the indigenous people, I believe in Ecuador, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: how their land has been just thoroughly polluted by Chevron. And then through this lawfare case, they've been able to get away with not compensating these people in Ecuador. Just all throughout this hemisphere, you see the really throughout the world, but definitely in our own backyard, we can see how indigenous people are not only at the forefront of struggle, but they've been greatly impacted by this corporate, really criminality in terms of the environment.
4: Yeah. I spoke with couple people on that subject, just kind of the role of settler colonialism, capitalism and imperialism, and how that really relates to the displacement, the destruction of people's lands. That was also just a key theme on Monday. I spoke to Joseph, who currently lives in Massachusetts, but his community originates from Oklahoma. But he came out because he understood that the same sort of destruction of the lands in Minnesota are also tied to the destruction of lands in Massachusetts. They also have struggles that involve issues of pipelines going through native land, native land being seized by the United States government just to benefit industrial capitalists in furthering, I guess, either pipelines or Back then, I guess he said that it starts even from the railroad companies onwards. So there's always been this connection between monopoly capitalism and settler colonialism.
1: This has been in the government's playbook for a long time when industry, capitalist extraction industry, comes to them and says, We want this. Uh, They're more than willing to make the accommodations by by displacing native people.
3: So these actions are happening throughout this week. It started on Monday, Indigenous People's Day, and they're going through Friday, right?
4: Yes. So every day from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m., there will be some sort of action and calling attention to the fact that the normal, everyday working people, they don't benefit from a sort of economy, a sort of system that's so dependent and addicted to fossil fuels. They see that there's a path forward that doesn't rely on the destruction of native land, the destruction of the climate overall, and these people who are largely young people, a lot of people who are, I guess, retired, but have been in this movement for decades now, and of course, led by many indigenous leaders, they're not going away. They were singing the indigenous national anthem while the police were declaring it a, uh, an unlawful assembly. expectation is they're taking an escalatory path to this to where Mm -hmm. a lot of people are risking arrest each day. So they have a very comprehensive jail support system. They're going to keep demanding this until they achieve what they plan to do.
3: Well, we will for sure pay attention to everything happening this week. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Esther. So that was Ben Zinovich and he is going to be down there covering all the actions this week. And, you know, we'll also be covering them and including more coverage on, on the ground on Friday, but you know, these people are very serious and they realize that this is maybe the best chance they have of getting any type of meaningful climate legislation and any meaningful climate legislation through Congress, and to have executive actions taken by the White House. So they're in it to win it, and we have to be there with them.
1: Esther, we're going to keep following the fight to stop line three. I mean, it's really, truly outrageous. The last thing this country or the world needs is another oil pipeline, completely unnecessary and again violating the rights of the indigenous population treaty rights Biden signed that indigenous peoples day and said that sovereign rights of the indigenous peoples must be you know acknowledged and yet here he is not doing anything to prevent this gross violation of indigenous sovereign rights anyway let's go to another story and this goes under the broad and wrongly labeled banner of critical race theory What we're actually witnessing around the country is a mobilization by the ultra-right, by the forces that have been historically tied to ultra-rightism, which means fascism or semi-fascism, and certainly to white supremacy, demanding that the history of this country not be taught. That after centuries of maintaining genocide the enslavement of millions of people, apartheid, that the history of this country must not be taught. And this isn't simply the history of black America. This is the history of the United States, because you cannot think about the United States or have even an approximate understanding of the United States as a social and economic phenomena without understanding These facts, these obvious and true facts. And yet under the rubric, Esther, of stopping critical race theory, there is an attempt to erase history, even by those forces who maintained a policy of enforced segregation just 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, or in many parts of the country, enforce those same segregationist policies today.
3: Absolutely. You know, we've been talking about this and this white supremacist attack on teaching the truth is really ramping up around the country. And now it's culminating in black educators who are standing up and teaching the truth or saying simply that black lives matter. These people are being fired or they're resigning from school districts around the country. I want to draw listener's attention to an important article in this past Sunday, New York times, October 10th by Erica green, documenting a particular case of a veteran educator Andrea Kane here nearby where we are in Washington, D.C., she was in Queen Anne County. And a lot of people know this county as the county that you get to right over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge on your way to the beach, right? It's kind of like county on the way to the beach. Anyway, after George Floyd was murdered last year, like many educators around the country, she felt like an obligation to address this, you know, in the district that she... Headed, And she wrote a letter that included the phrase, and this was sent out to all nearly 8,000 parents of students in the district. And she said, racism is alive in our country, in our state, in Queen Anne's County, and in our schools, end quote. Well, anyway, after she wrote this, she became the target of a vicious campaign by a group that came to be known as the Kent Island Patriots part of this patriot movement. And you know that word from January 6th and the whole grouping of people who consider themselves patriots and standing up for what they believe are American values. And as you mentioned, very often, this is the value of not telling the truth about American history. Well, anyway, this group came after her and went on a year-long campaign to basically try to reverse many of the positive policies that she put in place in the district to identify systems and incidents where Black students, Latinx students, any people of color were targeted by racist insults, by practices from teachers, from other students, programs to equalize discriminatory practices within the school district that eliminated Black students from being able to access, you know, special programs, gifted and talented programs, the same things that are happening all around the country. And to also put into the curriculum more information, maybe about the same things that you were just talking about. I think we talked about banned books recently, where even the story of Ruby Bridges that I think you made mention of, or, you know, alluded to earlier, the little girl in New Orleans who had to be Escorted to school by marshals, U.S. marshals, so that those schools could be integrated, that even there was an attempt to not have that story be told. So this educator was trying to make some of these kinds of changes in this predominantly white county. And the viciousness of the attack on her and on any teachers or parents who came to support her was so fierce that she, a year later, just a few months ago, resigned. And now she's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and, you know, training another generation of educators. But these educators are coming up against these fierce winds, really whipped up by the far right, really as a strategy for elections, because they found an issue that they can use to really whip up their base. And another article about the same issue by NBC News talks about that. And this article was actually written back in July by Tyler Kincaid. Kincaid wrote that the local backlash to addressing race in schools has been fueled in part by national conservative groups and activists who see the anti- critical race theory fights as a winning political issue and have helped parents mobilize as more parents confronted administrators over diversity and equity initiatives over the past year, their activism has been highlighted by conservative media, amplifying the pressure on districts, quote, a single school district can't combat a national propaganda machine that's intent on pushing a particular narrative and driving wedges in communities. Said Tracy Benson, Associate Executive Director of the Arizona School Boards Association. And so, getting back to Maryland, for example, it's interesting that playing into this issue is also the issue of policing. One of the parents opposing Andrea Kane over here in Queen Anne County said that they objected to the note she wrote after George Floyd was murdered, saying that this is a quote on the Kent Island. Patriots Facebook page, I believe quote, the children must know that those individuals who died in police custody were criminals, not heroes. Our children will not be indoctrinated by anyone's political opinion in the school. And our children must never feel that their white skin color, make them guilty of slavery or racism. So this whole issue is very much connected to the support, the blue movement, upholding really police terror in communities and not acknowledging that that terror exists or that it's real. Some of the people in charge of this movement, there was a Ms. Schifronelli. She is an immigrant from Yugoslavia and she relates this to her being an immigrant and how America has welcomed her. And she talks about her experience with communism. And so this Patriot group, it has also this component of anti-communism and relating any effort for diversity and for standing up for people of color, to communism. So that's very important, it's very dangerous. We just have to keep watching how people who are simply trying to tell the truth about American history, about all of our history, it's not just black history, as you said, how they're being targeted, and how people in schools, teachers, superintendents, curriculum builders. All these people are under attack. And we have to find ways as activists to support the teaching of the truth of American history, because it's really vital at this point. This is just as much of the tip of the spear of the fascist movement in this country as is policing and militarism.
1: Yeah, Esther, it's really a despicable situation. The truth is big picture here is that The racist mobs that tried to stop the civil rights movement from succeeding, those were the mobs that surrounded Ruby Bridges when she was a schoolgirl, white mobs who wanted to kill her. And the only reason she could make it to school, in addition to her own courage and bravery, was that armed police officers sent also by the federal government had to surround her to prevent her from being destroyed, from being killed. Because she, as a young black girl, was going to integrate an all-white school—that was America, that was New Orleans, but it was also Little Rock, it was also Chicago. You know, as Malcolm X said, the South starts at the U.S.-Canadian border. In many ways, you know, this was the reality of the United States. But the civil rights movement, because it gained strength and finally won with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and then the affirmative action programs initiated by none other than Richard Nixon, who was considered a conservative and who was considered, in addition to being an anti-communist, a racist. But the movement was so strong in the 50s and got stronger in the 60s that the ruling class shifted its position and it basically made it verboten, made it not acceptable to be openly racist in American society. Not that people weren't, but in fact, you would pay a price if you were openly racist. In other words, the language had to change. And that was enforced by the US ruling class because it wanted to prevent a revolution in America. And the political climate changed. And with the rise of Donald Trump in particular, what Trump did was say to the racists, It's cool to be a racist. It's okay. We're going to start our political rallies denouncing Mexicans and people who are immigrants from Latin America as rapists. It's okay to be able to call countries like Haiti and other countries in the developing world as shithole countries. That's the president of the United States talking like this. And it dovetails with the Tea Party that came before that, where, you know, Obama, the first black president, was called a communist and they showed up at town hall meetings to talk about health care with guns. And they made the point that Obama couldn't possibly be a real American, that he had to be a foreigner because he was black. And this rise of racism in the last 13, 14 years, has erupted now so that the pro Trump movement, the Make America Great movement, has become really a vessel to overturn the taboo that racism, the open expressions of racism, had become by 1970 or in the early 1970s and certainly beyond. So what's changed is that racism, which was kind of put into the closet, has come out of the closet. And now the right wing in America feels very comfortable with attacking anybody who stands up against racism and especially attacking immigrants, attacking Latinos, attacking black people and this attack and assault under the rubric the phony rubric of critical race theory also known as teaching american history has a lot of people who are being victimized by it especially outside of the you know the northeast or the west coast cities where the progressive sector of society is stronger. I'm looking at another article. You talked about Maryland. Here's from the Washington Post from early September. Families beg for black principal to be reinstated after critical race theory dispute. Quote, nothing short of a witch hunt. And there's a picture of Principal James Whitfield posing with a student at a high school pep rally. And most of the students around him Are white, but it's not an entirely white school, but it's a black principal. He was the first black principal in the school. He's been suspended, and the parents and the kids, most of whom, again, in these pictures, who are leading walkouts and doing social media posts, are white kids and white parents demanding that he be reinstated. But what was his crime? What was the reason that he was targeted with all of this racism? Is that he wanted to support a teaching curriculum that included the truth about American history, which his critics called a conspiracy theory of systemic racism, close quote. And the district in Texas placed the principal, Principal Whitfield, on paid administrative leave. So this is a struggle all over the country that's going on. And I'm so glad, Esther, that you were able to highlight it, we have to continue to focus on it because racism is above all other problems in the United States. The principal obstacle to social change, racism, as you called it, the tip of the spear of fascism in America. And it's the reason, if you want to look and think about why the United States doesn't have, you know, Medicare for all, Why social programs are so lacking, why the social safety net is so inadequate, say, compared to leading capitalist powers in Europe. The reason is the class struggle in the United States has been weakened principally by the promotion of white racism and white supremacy among a significant part of the white population. So we have to identify and understand that racism isn't just an issue, racism is the central issue in class struggle politics in the United States. Right. So, Walter, let's turn from the home front where US imperialism is still carrying out a war against black America to US imperialist aggression against people in other parts of the world. Let's talk about what the CIA said about China.
2: Yeah, so another act of escalation by the United States as it pursues this overall geopolitical policy of great power competition, which really means a new Cold War that's catastrophically dangerous for all of the world. So the CIA announced that they were going to form a China Mission Center. A mission center essentially means that the significance, the amount of resources, the amount of energy, the amount of political attention that's being paid to spying operations, covert operations, subversion in a particular country is sort of taken to the next level, right? There's only a handful of mission centers that the CIA Operates And it indicates that that targeted country is going to be the recipient of all of this extra aggression and resources to back up that aggression. And now China is on the list of those countries targeted by a CIA mission center. Of course, that's going to mean that China will need to respond in some way to protect itself because you know the record of the CIA all around the world is perhaps more infamous than maybe any other organization that's existed. I don't know. So this is something I'm sure that's being taken very seriously inside of China. And it also comes on the heels of another revelation in the press that there has been a contingent of U.S. soldiers, including many special forces soldiers, carrying out secret training exercises, secret training operations for the Taiwanese military. Taiwan is rightfully seen by the government of China as part of China. It's also rightfully seen by the United States as a part of China. The
1: United States in the Shanghai communique said Taiwan is part of China.
2: Yeah, and the official name of the Taiwanese government according to the Taiwanese government is the Republic of China. So it's yeah, it's not in dispute. But essentially what the United States is doing by amping up the military assistance provided to the Taiwanese government is, you know, challenging the Chinese military to do the same. Because of course when the United States carries out such a wanton violation of Chinese sovereignty, they need to respond too. And so it creates this dynamic where even though perhaps neither side really desires a hot war to break out, a shooting war to break out, because of the reckless actions of the US military and the CIA too, the risk of an accidental escalation has reached a truly, truly dangerous level and it requires the intervention of peace loving people all around the world to try to step back from maybe the brink here.
1: We're going to do an entire story on this topic on Thursday. In the real story, we're going to have Dr. Ken Hammond, Professor Ken Hammond, back again for another show on China. We're going to talk about what's going on with Taiwan. We need the U.S. audience to understand how China views Taiwan and why the U.S. carrying out these secret military training operations with Taiwanese military forces in secret until recently revealed, and the fact that the U.S. is stepping up arm cells to Taiwan and then China reciprocating is now flying Chinese fighter aircraft into airspace close to Taiwan. All of this is leading to a confrontation. And the people who are engineering it know it will lead to a confrontation. And they can only know that and continue with it If they want it to be a confrontation, which I believe they do want a confrontation, they don't want a global thermonuclear war. But the US is planning for an air-sea conflict with China somewhere in the South or East China Sea. I think the military strategy here is that China won't dare escalate it to a global conflict. But I think some parts and important parts, maybe the center of the Pentagon now believes That by taking military initiatives against China in the Pacific region, that it will have a damaging impact on the Chinese economy. We can see that Huawei, which has you know successfully freed Meng Wanzhou, the financial officer who was finally released from Canada, they succeeded there. That was a victory for China, but Huawei is largely diminished. The impact of the last three years on Huawei on its sales, on its ability to sell. Cell phones, which were a big part of its capacity, selling less expensive, high quality phones, out competing Apple or Google with the Android. I mean, that's been largely diminished. So the U.S. feels that they're making headway in their war against China. And I think we have to understand Taiwan and the unilateral escalation by the U.S. on Taiwan, the most sensitive issue regarding China's view of its own territory, is a deliberate. Dangerous act, but one that aims towards confrontation. Anyway,
3: I just wanted to add that there's a role of corporate media in all of this. And I hope that on Thursday, Ken Hammond, through your discussion, you can kind of give us more information about what is the role of Taiwanese leadership in all this. I was looking at a headline from Democracy Now! from Monday, and it quoted President Xi saying that national reunification by peaceful means best serves the interests of the Chinese nation as a whole, which includes our compatriots in Taiwan. We will maintain our basic policies of peaceful unification and one country, two systems uphold the one China principle in the 1992 consensus. And we will work to promote the peaceful development of cross straight relations. But then Taiwan's president, responded on Sunday saying Taiwan would not bow to pressure from China. And she's quoted as saying, We will not act rashly, but there should be absolutely no illusions that the Taiwanese people will bow to pressure. We will continue to bolster our national defense and demonstrate our determination to defend ourselves in order to ensure that nobody can force Taiwan to take the path China has laid out for us end quote. So that was ominous to me because I want to understand more about what Taiwan is doing and how they are an actor in this whole process.
2: Yes, indeed. I think that's a really important point. I mean, there's two main political parties in Taiwan. One is the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, the same Nationalist Party that was the main opponent of the Communist Party in the Chinese Civil War. And then there's the Democratic Progressive Party. The Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, is considered to be more open to improving relations with mainland China, but the Democratic Progressive Party is considered to be more sympathetic to the Taiwanese independence forces. It's too explosive for the Democratic Progressive Party to have as its official, openly, explicitly stated policy, a declaration of Taiwanese independence. You know, in other words, doing away with this Long lasting consensus that there's only one China and there's this new entity called Taiwan. But the Taiwanese independence forces are influential inside the DPP, and President Chiang Wen is, you know, I think sort of winking and nodding to those forces as a way to amp up this pressure. Even in that statement that Esther read where the president referred to the Taiwanese people, I mean, even that formulation, right, Taiwanese, not Chinese, is kind of an indicator that they're heading in this very dangerous direction.
1: Yes. And I think she's doing more, the president is doing more than winking and nodding, even though it may take that form. They're moving in the direction, trying to move in the direction of independence. And just so people... You know, it's really, really, really important to have a historical perspective on these things. Yugoslavia, which was the last socialist country to survive in Eastern Central Europe, survived until NATO destroyed it in 1999. This was 10 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the overthrow of the socialist governments in Eastern and Central Europe. Yugoslavia was a multinational republic. It had six different republics. So, there were Kosovars who were mainly Muslims. There were the Serbs who were mainly Eastern Orthodox Christians. There were the Croatians who were predominantly Catholic. Anyway, there was both, even though the people were a people and spoke the same language, the historical, both geographical and religious differences created different peoples who occupied the different parts of Yugoslavia, created a sort of a patchwork. And the US and the European capitalist powers, when they wanted to destroy Yugoslavia, they did it by dismembering Yugoslavia. So remember, the war in 1995 against Yugoslavia and Bosnia was to defend the Bosnian Muslims. The war was waged under the pretext of defending a minority people who were not Serbs, and then the war in 1999. It was to defend the Kosovar, Albanian Muslim, predominantly Muslim population, which was part of Serbia. Had been a part of Serbia for like centuries and centuries and centuries. But in the struggle for to overthrow the socialist government, it was a dismemberment strategy, and that's what the United States is doing in China. You can see Taiwan. Hong Kong, Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs are, Tibet. These are the foci of American imperialist sort of strategies against China because it's part and parcel of a dismemberment strategy as the sort of the quintessential theme of regime change. Anyway, we are going to talk with Professor Hammond more about it in depth again on Thursday. So we encourage everybody to listen to that show. Real quick, I want to. Mentioned that four-star Army General Ray Odierno, who was a key architect of the U.S. war in Iraq, has died in the last few days. I want to read a couple of sentences to you from the Washington Post because the awful coverage in the corporate mainstream media about this war criminal and his life and his, what he did in Iraq is so sanitized. And because as a leader of the Answer Coalition and a principal organizer in the U.S. anti-war movement, we knew all about General Raymond Orderno, as did his troops, for being a real butcher. But I want to read how the Washington Post talks about him. And then just think about these words, the words they use, and then think about what Orderno really did. Raymond O'Derno, four-star Army general who was a key architect of the surge in U.S. forces during the Iraq War. That was credited with reducing violence and increasing stability in the country and who later became the Army's chief of staff or highest ranking general died on October 8th. An imposing figure at six feet, five inches and 250 pounds with a shaved head, General Oderno had an affable nature and developed a strong rapport with his troops. He was considered one of the army's most capable battlefield leaders. He had three tours of duty in Iraq, blah, blah, blah. After the heavily bearded and unkempt Saddam Hussein was captured and found in an underground bunker in a rural area of North Baghdad in December 2003, General Oderno uttered one of the more memorable comments of the conflict. He was caught like a rat. When you're in a bottom of a hole, you can't fight back. Hussein, of course, was then executed. He was the head of state. Those last words were my words, by the way. Despite, this is the post again, despite the high profile capture of Hussein, General Oderno had a mixed record during his first tour in Iraq. Soon after his arrival in the country in 2003, he told those under his command I want to make sure you understand my intent. I want to be lethal. Make them, meaning the Iraqi people who they're occupying, make them understand when they come up against us, they're going to be killed or captured. The 4th Infantry Division, under his leadership, became known for, get this, its rough methods, including, get this, breaking down the doors of private homes and grabbing young Iraqi men off the street. And delivering them to the notorious Abu Ghraib prison." Well, thank you, Washington Post, for that kind of coverage. I mean, yes, they went into the homes of Iraqi civilians door by door, knocked down their doors, dragged out the young men, took them to Abu Ghraib, tortured them. Many of them were executed. The reason Iraq divided, the reason it split apart, the reason ISIS was created was because of General Orderno and the other leaders of the Pentagon High Command, the idea that he contributed to reducing violence and increasing stability, as the Post says in the beginning, shows in fact the criminal character of the Washington Post coverage of this war criminal. Anyway, Ray Orderno, remembered by us at least here on this program correctly for what he is, a war criminal, if anything, he should have been brought to trial, along with George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and those who sent him there, including Donald Rumsfeld, for crimes against humanity and war crimes. And of course, what was identified at the Nuremberg trials as the primary crime of the Nazis, which is the crime against peace itself. Walter, last stories. Let's talk about what's the big stories on Liberation News.
2: Yes, go to liberationnews.org, sign up for our newsletter at the top. One piece that I definitely want to highlight is titled Celebrate Continuing Resistance on Indigenous People's Day. We were talking about that at the top of the show. Here's an article that's, I think, very good to share to explain the significance of this holiday. There is an article titled IATSE Union Defies Hollywood Bosses with Near-Unanimous Strike Vote. This is something that I think is really giving a lot of people hope across the country, labor organizers, union members, 60,000 IATSE Hollywood workers, oftentimes very low paid, oftentimes forced to work just inhuman hours, long, long, long hours, took a nearly unanimous vote to authorize a strike if necessary to get what they deserve from the Hollywood capitalists. And finally, I want to recommend an article titled NYC socialist candidate tells Abortion Rights Action, we are fighting for the future. On October 2nd, there were very important demonstrations that took place across the country to stand up against the attempts to make abortion illegal, to defend and expand abortion rights. Kathy Rojas, who's running for mayor of New York City, she's the socialist candidate, spoke at the large New York City action, and this is her speech. You can read it on liberationnews.org. Again, sign up for the newsletter at the top. All right, that's it. We
1: covered a lot of ground today. We'll be back with Richard Wolf. Tomorrow, we're gonna to be talking about strikes, worker strikes in the United States. And then on Thursday, as I mentioned, we're with Professor Ken Hammond, a real expert on US-China policy and on China itself. Again, that'll be on Thursday. We want to thank everyone who is a supporter of this show. We can't do it without you. Please subscribe if you enjoy the show or rely on the show. Do your part by going to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program and becoming a subscriber. Nicole, Walter, Esther. That's it for today. We'll see or talk to everyone tomorrow.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners.